Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to another special bonus episode of this podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff. I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, we're celebrating this week because we got a brand new course on communication out there, which is an all-in-one resource called The Art of Better Preaching that Mark Clark and I put together. I'll explain a little bit more about that in a moment. Uh, but I thought we'd focus on communication because you know what? Communication is something every leader has to do. You're like, well, I'm not a preacher. I never have to, I, I get that. A lot of you, you're not preachers. But every time you open your mouth, you're leading. And I mean, if you're making a presentation in a boardroom, if you're trying to cast vision to a team, if you're trying to mobilize volunteers, if you're trying to motivate your staff, there are ways to do it that are effective and then ways to do it that are ineffective. And here, here's a little challenge for you, okay? Somebody once told me years ago, and I think they're right, the church has the best communicators in the world. And I think that's true. I mean, watch the average politician, whether that's at the you know gubernatorial level or the premier or prime minister or president, uh, even even you know the mayoral level in municipal politics. Most most politicians are not great speakers. Uh, they're just not. And and sometimes that really you know you look at a John F. Kennedy or Ronald Reagan or um, you know they were powerful communicators, and that's one thing that really helped them become better leaders. Uh, Martin Luther King, you look at his junior, you look at his communication skills, unbelievable. And so that's what I want to help you sharpen wherever you're at. Now, this is a preaching course. And a lot of you, you know, this is your day in and day out grind. And so you're like, I got I to get another message done. And I don't know about you, I've preached to the same people for like 23 years. Can you believe that? 23 years. And Sometimes, you know, that's more challenging than going on the road. So how do you do it? How do you stay fresh? Well, in the Art of Better Preaching course, here's what Mark and I cover. We cover like, what is preaching? Um, how do you preach to the unchurched without losing your soul or losing them? Uh, the how of preaching, what are the mechanics of it? Uh, what about the text? Like, how do you interact with a biblical text? Or even if you're not preaching on the Bible, you're just speaking, how do you find the power in what you're talking about? I do a unit on that. How to cultivate growth in your church and evangelism through preaching. How to create a killer bottom line. Like literally, I learned this art uh, over a decade ago. Uh, but there are messages that I preached 10 years ago that like people can tell me what the main point was. It blows me away, but there's there's a secret to that. And it's a five-part method that I walk you through in detail in the course. It's the most detailed training I've ever done on it. Also, how to deliver a talk without using notes. It is easier than you think. And we have helped dozens, maybe even before the course release, hundreds of people do this. And I got to tell you, you are capable of speaking without using notes. Like, for example, surprise, surprise, I'm not using notes. I mean, I'm not reading a script right now. I'm not. And that makes a conversation way more engaging. And then we talk about the spiritual dimension of preaching, uh, how to stay fresh over the long haul. Plus, Mark and I have a lot of fun. Um, we're actually very different people, which I think makes the course stronger. If you want to learn more, go to theartofbetterpreaching.com today because you've got special pricing. Like in a week, the price goes up, literally. Um, so we would love to get you in on that course. It's yours for life. And it comes with a PDF uh, workbook that's interactive so that you can keep notes, really good notes. Uh, we put a lot of time and effort into this course. 
and it's yours um, actually for a surprisingly low price. So check it out at theartofbetterpreaching.com today before the price goes up. And in the meantime, I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to actually interview somebody that I consider to be one of the best communicators I've ever heard? period. And I've heard a lot of communicators. But first time I heard Danielle Strickland, which was actually only last year, um, I, I was I was mesmerized. I'm like, wow, how does she do that? And I, I got to know her. And so I thought, well, I'm going to ask her. So we talk about her life story, but we also talk about how she preps, how she learned she was a communicator. I mean, she has an art of storytelling and just a presence on stage that that is second to none. I, I've never heard anybody better in terms of the style of communication she has. And uh, we actually now only live about an hour apart. And this originally aired on the Canadian Church Leaders podcast, which uh, I put in hiatus for now so I could focus more on this podcast and bring you like bonus episodes like this. So for some of you, this may be a repeat. It is worth listening to again. For most of you, uh, this is going to be brand new information. But here is my conversation with Danielle Strickland. Danielle, welcome to the podcast. It is absolutely great to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that's great. We've gotten to know each other a little bit through a mutual friend, Reggie Joyner, who I think knows everybody. Yeah, and then we started <laughs> running into each other at airports around the world. So Yeah, that's that? right. Where was that? Yeah. I was I was leaving Exponential and you were literally I was getting onto the same plane that you had just gotten off of. Oh, that's hilarious. Because I think I that's spoke great. on one day and you were speaking the next day at Exponential. But that was that was great. So two Canadians who met in, if I remember right, Orlando. Yeah, that's not a new story. And we also we also <laughs> got stranded in Orlando in November. Oh yeah, that's right. When they had yeah. that airport craziness. Oh yeah. If anybody saw that like little news story about the fake bomb, they thought it was a bomb, but it was just what was it, a camera that had a battery well, that, was that a exploded? Story. This, that's the story they told us. Yeah, I'm still not sure. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but there were like no. 10,000 of us stuck there, including chaos. a whole bunch of us who had just spoken in Orlando the day before. And yeah. we ended up with Reggie flying to Atlanta to get back to Toronto, where right. we're both based out of. So, Right, exactly. All that said, this is so much simpler than that. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and uh, Danielle, you've had a fascinating life and journey. So uh, I want to start with communication. Um, and I, I say this, you know, I, I don't want to embarrass you or anything, but I think you're one of the most, I'm going to say, naturally gifted communicators. And I mean that like your style is just riveting and it comes across so natural. I know it's a gift, but I also imagine that you've developed it. Um, let's go back to the beginning. When did it first occur to you that you may have a gift for communication, that that's the way God wired you up? You know what? I think um, it occurred to me when I was in uh, training to be a Salvation Army officer, and we had a homiletics class on how to preach. And we had assignments where we had to go preach somewhere to practice. And the place that I did my assignment when I was done preaching, I remember the officer in charge coming to me saying, do you have a copy of that? And um, could I keep it? And are you going to do a whole series? And could you do more? You know, so. <laughs> That's pretty affirming. Yeah. So I remember thinking, huh, okay, I think this is maybe something that I I do well. I mean, I hadn't I honestly even tried that hard. Do you know what I mean? Like I just was yeah. doing exercise like everybody else. Um, so I think that was probably my first inkling. And you would have been in your late teens, early 20s, that kind of thing, like that yeah, formative 20, college 20, era. Yeah, 21, 22. 
Yeah. So you weren't like the the girl who was like in public speaking or debating or anything like that or anxious to always talk in class or it, it was sort of the epiphany happened while you were training. Yeah. And I mean, I, I was a high school dropout, drug addict, um, landed in jail. Like, so I missed kind of all those normal formative uh, You were not years. at the head of your class. Let's put it that so way. I was not in the debating team, although I love debating and I debated with my principal a bunch about school systems and structures. <laughs> and, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I, I would say that I knew even as a rebellious kid that I had a leadership gift because I was always leading people the wrong way. Um, <laughs> and I was never alone. You know, people were coming with me. <laughs> So, um, I knew that, but the speaking gift really, I didn't really understand I had until later. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? So leadership and speaking, they're often tied together. Like every leader has to communicate just for those who don't know. I mean, your story, you talk about it pretty openly, but talk about how that happened. How did you end up, you know, rebelling, drug addiction, dropping out of high school? What's the backstory to that, Danielle? Well, I mean, all addiction is pain. Um, Really, it's all pain management. So um, although I did have a beautiful gift of a family, um, both my parents were actually rescued orphans. Mm -hmm. uh, the Salvation Army had rescued them in different neighborhoods, really looking for poor kids that needed some hope, uh, found both my parents and they found each other. Uh, and they did a fantastic job um, for what they knew to do. Sure. And uh, but in that environment, I you know, we encountered some sexual abuse in my parents' churches and, um, yeah, and just internal uh, pain that I self-managed. Um, and I actually always believed, I think, this terrible lie that rebellion was freedom. So I am designed to be free. There's no question about that. I hate restrictions and authority. I struggle with uh, those sort of things. And so I think in my mind, Christianity was all those things which meant that God was all those things and that rebellion was the opposite of those things. And so I just went for it because I wanted to be free. Of course, what I discovered is what everybody discovers in rebellion is that rebellion just leads to death mm. and, uh, and sort of tasting some of that death. Um, I realized this is a lie. And then I had this incredible supernatural weird encounter with Jesus in a jail cell that um, helped me understand that he loved me. And he wasn't mad at me or disappointed in me, or he didn't even really need me. He just mm -hmm. loved me. And um, that love woke me up. You know, my mother describes it as I didn't change speeds. I just changed direction. And uh, as much as I was headed to death, I, I was like, let's do this life thing. Um, so, yeah, that's the, that's the short story. How old were you when that happened? I was 17 when I was in jail and experiencing Jesus. And then I spent a couple years after that getting clean and uh, discovering that life was bigger than me and that uh, a little bit of the globe, I went on a couple mission trips that kind of changed the trajectory of my life. Mm -hmm. Would your parents have called themselves Christians when you were growing up? Like, Yeah, my parents church. were Christian leaders. They were pastors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, my father is a very gifted communicator. He's a very gifted preacher and uh, really a biblical kind of scholar guy. And so it wasn't actually until years later that I actually realized that a lot of my preaching gift in terms of bringing the Bible to life 
really came from years of listening to really good preaching. I just didn't know it was really good preaching because that's all I I knew. That's right. That's all I knew. I mean, I didn't. But uh, now I realize, you know, looking back that he was an exceptional biblical communicator. You, I mean, there's so many directions we could go in, in this interview. Um, you've talked about abuse quite publicly. Is that part of the story you're comfortable sharing? Like, you know, you don't have to go into deep details, but I mean, that is a pretty common experience for a lot of people. Um, how did that impact you? And why, in the end of the day, did you come back to the church? Yeah, that's a really uh, beautiful, deep um, question. I think for me, I mean, if if addiction's pain management and it leads to death, <laughs> then eventually you have to actually figure out how else to manage your pain. Yeah. Uh, and for me, I mean, I literally like the words of Peter, you know, to whom else, where will we go? Like, where will I find uh, healing and grace and and freedom. And for me, this experience of recovery, you know, I think we're, we're addicted to a narrative in the Christian, in the Christian church that's more like Disney than is like scriptural. And for me, the transformation from, you know, abuse and pain to freedom and healing is ongoing. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly in recovery. I feel like the, I I share this sometimes the born again experience is this thing that keeps on going that salvation, you know, i love that verse in Thessalonians. It says that, um, he's going to sanctify you or make you whole through and through so that your whole spirit and soul and body will be made blameless. It's this idea of, you know, this salvation's got to work itself through our entire lives. And I feel like it takes an entire life to work salvation all the way through so that your mind is renewed and your heart is renewed and pain is uncovered. And in my experience, and I think this might be the kindness of God, but I've had different seasons in my life where different pain has been uncovered. Mm -hmm. And what happens now is that I'm not like shocked and horrified by pain because I know that I am connected to a healer. And when pain is uh, it, when pain is exposed, it means that grace is also enough to process and heal through this level of pain, which means I'm more and more whole. And um, so I feel like rather than this, like there's never really been this instant healing. I remember when I went to treatment to get healed from my addiction, I remember thinking like this should happen quickly. Cause I have to get on with my life. Do you know what I mean? Like I, this is I in do. my way and I wasn't here. And I would read all these incredible stories. Like a lot of the ways that I learned how to lead and, and live were from biographies of other Christians who had l- lived and had books written about them. So I was voraciously reading these uh, stories and I was like, where's my supernatural healing? Like, where's this, like, get this off of me. And it, it's really been a thorn in my side for a long time. But, um, I realized that, um, that Achilles heel or thorn was this invitation to depend on God. And now I've come to just really value that there is weakness in me that forces me to surrender and to trust and to depend and to need God in my everyday life. And um, now I understand that that that's a beautiful, beautiful gift. 
What was the supernatural encounter in the cell like? Because I've known a handful of people who have had that, and I'm just curious about your experience. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> I felt, heard, experienced Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to explain this. I don't, I, I, it sounds ludicrous, but um, I felt him hug me like it was an yeah. embrace. I felt mm-hmm. him speak to me and say, I love you. And then the best way that I describe what happened internally is, and I mean, I was like hard as nails, like someone mm-hmm. had just come to visit me from the Salvation Army to assure me that. I wasn't alone. I called it a conspiracy because I could never escape the Salvation Army my whole life. They kept finding me. And uh, <laughs> and so someone had just come in and, and hugged me. And I didn't even hug them back. You know, like they were leaving. And I was like, you right, you're the me. cold fish just standing yeah. there, right? I was like, yeah. you, didn't even, you didn't even bring me a smoke? Like, what kind of visit is this? You know, like I was totally ingrateful. I mean, just the worst. And, uh, and then Jesus showed up. And I feel like the best way to describe it is that somebody turned on a light. I saw everything differently and I even saw my own condition differently. Like up to that point, I was like, bring it, let's go to jail. Like this will look great on my resume to hell. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. And I literally was like, holy blank, I'm in jail. Like it just, I completely, everything, the whole perspective shifted for me. And I wouldn't even say that I got saved in that jail. So, cause I was so confused about, needing to be good and clean and right before I, I was useful to God. Like I was still confused about the nature of this salvation business. But what I did know was that God loved me. And that was the beginning of a trajectory of salvation. I don't mean nope. this. This is a really simple question. I don't mean it to be simplistic. How did you know it was Jesus? Well, he looked like the Jesus from Sunday school. This is what's really <laughs> funny. Like, like the beard and the robe and the, the one that hangs in every Sunday school class yeah, in every beard, but I do remember the robe ish thing. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I instinctively knew it was Jesus from hearing about Jesus, I think from recognizing yeah. the picture. I mean, since I've really developed some, uh, great, uh, exercises in listening prayer and found all kinds of varieties of Jesus um, in order to communicate to all parts of me. But in that, in that setting, yeah, I recognized him from Sunday school. That's okay. You know, <laughs> yeah. John Burke, who uh, I've had, I've interviewed before, has this book called Imagine Heaven. And your experience is not that different from near-death experiences where people remember Jesus as, but he's undeniably Jesus. Like he's undeniably, it's like, oh yeah, that may be a picture from a Sunday school, but this is like the son of God risen from the dead, Jesus. And people of different faith backgrounds, no faith background have had Mm -hmm. that experience, which which is interesting. So you're a rebel, you're in jail, you meet Jesus, Mm-hmm. Um, you're running from the army and you, end, you end up back in the army, this regimented, you know, a great organization, but one that, you know, does not harbor rebels frequently, maybe, shall we say, how, how did, why did you end up there? How did that work? Has that been a tension for you? Because you say you're, you know, 
it's it's not like that free will that God gave you that you ran in the other direction with when you were young just disappeared and you know you sat there and it was like yep just I'm just going to do what I'm told you've got that strong will how mm-hmm. does that play out in a can we call it traditional denominational setting yeah i mean this is a complicated complicated thing isn't it as yes, all it sides is. yeah and so well, it's interesting yeah, and it depends on what they ask me how I what I what my answer is going to be. But I think that um, one thing one thing is that the Salvation Army for me is more tribal mm-hmm. than organizational or structural. So that's a really important. I think that's important uh, for me. The trajectory of my family begins with the Salvation Army. Uh, so it's not, it's like the Salvation Army is like my grandparent, like what, you know, like, it, it, and I remember talking to a, a friend of mine one time who's a speaker and she said, better the dysfunctional family that you know, than the functional one you don't. <laughs> so there is a sense in which this is all I know. You know, this is what right. I grew up with. This is the narrative. This is my tribe. These are my people. So there's that, there's that. And that's a really, really important, uh, beautiful, beautiful thing. And, um, and the Salvation Army has this mix. It's really bizarre, but uh, they have a lot of freedom within their structure. Like when I was 22 years old, I graduated from the Salvation Army training school and was sent with my husband to, a, a, to lead the Salvation Army in a region. And that was it. Off you go. That's, wow. I don't know how many 22-year-olds get the chance to lead a region for their denomination. but <laughs> But they just sent you. They sent us, I mean, there were six people in the congregation, but you know, the, that place ran a soup line and a food bank and the, you know, a thrift store, a gener- a money generating thing. And then a church. And they just said, okay, do, do, do whatever you can. I mean, we were literally like 16 hours from the nearest headquarters. Wow. And, um, and so they never came and we never went and we just did whatever it was. We felt like God had given us like every idea that we possibly had out of the gate, we got to try and discover and learn and grow. And so like, I mean, I, I can't even picture an organization giving somebody more freedom than that. Hmm. And then at the same time, um, depending on where you are, it matters what you're wearing. Right. Right. Like I'm, yeah. it, it's, it's this weird contradiction, you know, where it's the most freedom for mission that you can possibly even imagine. Most core officers or, or church pastors in the Salvation Army are given a mandate to get people saved and to grow the kingdom of God. And, and it's sort of like, go do it. Like, right, right. We're not going to so, tell you how, just go do it. But then yeah. you got to wear this uniform or your skirt but, has to be a certain length. Yeah, exactly. But the color of your nylons matters, you know, so it's, <laughs> it's this weird uh, juxtaposition. So for me, it was pretty easy to navigate because God had called my husband and I for most of our um, officership to church plant in new locations mm-hmm. and in kind of unique ways. So there was no blueprint for how to do this and there was no regulations or systems or structures and for how to do this. So that created even more freedom uh, for us to minister from there. Um, and then it just gets a little bit like dicey after that, to tell you the truth. It gets, it gets hard. Some, depending on who's in charge, um, is how much freedom there was to pursue what it was that God was calling me to. So, and then you'll know most recently in December, um, I finished being a Salvation Army officer and I'm still a member of the Salvation Army. My husband's still an officer in the Salvation Army. It's still my tribe. They're still my people. But in terms of actual organizational structure, 
what God was calling me to do in this season of my life could not fit. Um, and so that, that itself brought a whole new level of freedom. A lot of us make transitions at some point. I was part of a mainline denomination. Um, I decided for a variety of reasons to step out a decade ago and start over non-denominationally with a new tribe. Uh, and that's not an unfamiliar story. What what are... I mean, it's really interesting because there's a lot of freedom within limits, but sometimes you need a new system. So just talk to people who are wrestling with that about some of the factors that could tip you know, leaders in one direction or another when they're thinking about, you know, do I stay or is this time for something new? What, what were some of the factors that, um, that helped you make that decision? Yeah, I think for me, it was, um, it was calling. Mm. You know, I think that when God puts it in you, to do some things. And, the, and it wasn't just like in my own mind, do you know what I mean? It wasn't like, yeah. Ooh, I'm supposed to do all this. It was like literally opportunities and invitations and confirmations of what God was leading. And I really felt more and more and more that God was calling me to mobilize, uh, the whole church, you know, or to be a part of helping the whole church discover broader church. Yeah. And some of the DNA that the Salvation Army has as its own movement, you know, DNA, beautiful DNA, 150 years old of justice and women's empowerment and, uh, you know, fighting against systems, oppression, trafficking, like 150 years ago. It has this beautiful justice uh, calling, uh, empowering the poor. Um, those were all things that were burning within me. So it wasn't even like it was different than what it was that I was called to. It was just that I felt like God had invited me to share that DNA with the rest of the, the body of Christ. Hmm. And so I feel a friend of mine gave me a really beautiful word unknowingly. She didn't know she was giving me a word, but she wrote to me. She said, I keep getting this every time I pray for you. She said, I keep getting this phrase. And she said, I have no idea what it means because it doesn't seem to make sense because your son's only 15. But I said, no, go ahead, send it my way. And she said to me, it's not disloyal for a grown child to leave home. It's not disloyal for a grown child to leave home. And I think for us, and this might be helpful to somebody, like we always have, we always were forced for some reason, the world, because we're filled with boxes and containers and systems and structures that we have to, it's either like we're for it or we're against it or we're this or we're that, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's no place where we can think outside of those boxes. But I felt like the Lord's like, if you could think about this as growing into what it is that I've called you to, instead of, do I fit or do I not fit? Am I in or am I out? I I feel like for me, it was a really helpful process. I mean, for everyone else, it might not have been that helpful because everyone else is like, well, you're in or you're out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I felt the Lord really, like God was really gracious to me in saying, this is about your growth. And uh, years and years ago, when I was struggling with in or out, you know, and whether or not this was the way when I had some friction and some prevention from doing what I felt God wanted me to do. I remember having this frank conversation with God and God saying to me, can you or can you not just do whatever I tell you? Hmm. And I said to him, like, it feels like it's more complicated than that. (laughs) Like, (laughs) it feels like. Please allow me to complicate, complicate your will. Yeah. Right. And he's like, I, I really felt like God just rebuked me saying, all I'm asking you to do, you ca- you cannot change the system. You can't change the structure. You cannot. T- all I'm asking you to do is do what I tell you. Can you do it? And I was like, yes, I can. And he goes, then just do that. 
And so for the last, like probably five years before I even left the Salvation Army, I just did whatever he told me to do Hmm. as much as I possibly could. And that caused a fair bit of friction to tell you the truth. (laughs) I knew that the friction wasn't wasn't me. I knew that what I was doing was saying yes to what God was asking me to do. So it was really in many ways, it was this journey of obedience and surrender. And then ultimately what that led uh, to is this, you know, the ultimate posture of surrender and obedience to say, let's do it all the, all the way. Wow. How do you hear, like, how do you know? And I know everybody, you know, I could ask a hundred people, there'd be different answers, obviously scripture, but how did you know what God was calling you to do in that season? Like, would you say, what is your method for discernment where you're like, yep, that was the voice of God to the extent that we can be certain? Yeah. You know, I think this, you know, friends randomly sending you words, people praying. Yeah, that was for you. pretty powerful. She yeah. probably thought it was about your son. Yeah, totally. She didn't have So I think that too, like confirmations that are from outside, even the struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, we have to be attentive to those. We have to listen to those. And for me, I really asked God to speak very clearly uh, because I knew that everything, you know, when you have differences, Uh, with people. And when you don't fit in some certain systems and structures, then, you know, my response coming out of a rebellious background is to just be like, you know, yeah, forget it all. I'm out of here. You know, like give somebody the finger in Jesus's name and off I walk, you know, like that. And I was really worried that that's what I would, you know, that, that, that would be my posture. And I said to the Lord, like, please, I do not want that to be my posture. And then I think I, I went through this whole entire, like, is it me? Is it ego? Um, and that's a really big one, especially in organizations that care for the poor and really highly value servant-led leadership, is we get confused with servant-led leadership and, you know, actually using your gifts and skills to the fullest of what God's invited you to do. So that was a real struggle for me to actually get to a place where I realized this is not about ego uh, and to get myself out of the middle of it and uh, to put God back there. So I think for me, I think there's, uh, for me, the process was about dissatisfaction uh, and disruption. I think we don't pay enough attention to the disruption in our lives and that that, that thing inside of us that's like, this isn't it. This isn't good. This isn't okay. This isn't right. So there's this like narrative that's kind of started. I feel like a, a God usually changes things, lives, people, systems, structures, the church, you know, the world through disruption. Uh, and sometimes we're so conditioned as Christians and Christian leaders to be like, we're supposed to be at peace all the time. Right. that We forget that the way the peace comes is through a disruption of normal. So pay attention to the disruption. Um, don't be, you know, I've been preaching Acts 10 a lot lately because it's really pretty much my story of allow God to disturb you and to disturb your normal, to lead you into what it is that he has planned, which of course you can't control. And that that's where it comes to a posture of surrender and obedience, which is not popular, but it's important. Hmm. I want to circle back to where we started on on communication, and this, this is just fascinating to hear your story, your discernment process, all of that. But I mean, even when I hear you talk in the conversations we've had in the public speaking, you just have this way with words, this way of like uh, summarizing things in a clear and really beautifully authentic way. Um, in terms of message development, 
what have you done over you know your your time in ministry like have you worked at becoming better is it just a natural gift are there certain disciplines that you have to say okay i'm going to like hone my communication skill what what have you done on that yeah it wasn't until recently that i even gave this a whole lot of thought to tell you the truth but um it doesn't I, shock me <laughs> yeah i was thinking about it as people have been asking and i realized that when i was first starting out i really loved listening to good preaching mm. I used to subscribe to this thing called Preaching Today, I think it was. Oh, yeah, they, I remember that. I was a subscriber. A, a cassette in the mail, right? And I yeah, just, yeah. And I, would, I loved it. I loved listening to people preach. I loved how they, I loved the different styles of preaching. And then I kind of found a couple that I really loved, and I listened to them a lot. And the, the web came along, and then it was off, we were off, right? Right. Uh, so I listened a lot to preaching that moved me, that mattered to me. And I think that was, I think that's probably undervalued um, in speakers lives in terms of the time and stuff like that. But often hearing somebody else speak is a real instigator for the process in me of how I, how to communicate. Um, and then I did a little podcast, a a couple of, uh, maybe last year it was, it was called cooking up a good talk and it has kind of three parts to it. And ironically, I used the image of cooking, which I don't do much of. So it's ironic. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, how weird is this? So I can't cook much, but I can cook up a good talk. That's it. So in um, the first stage for me, uh, and so that's when I really started thinking about it. The first stage for me was a marinade mm. where I usually find something that um, like either a scripture that moves me or a thought or a process or something that's happening. And I just like sit in it for a while. And this is something sometimes that pastorally, if you're on week after week after week, is kind of hard to do. Yeah. but. The marinade has been an essential part. I just kind of let it, I sit in it for a bit and I just like let it get in me. And and how long would that be? Would that be like anywhere from like a couple weeks to a couple months or longer? What, what's the window? Yeah, it's a, it depends on what it is. Like, so for this, this, that, like just today I was doing some prep uh, for some new speaks coming up and just, um, I, but there are things that have been marinating in me for some time. So like I'll discover, I remember reading uh, Joseph of Arimathea coming to ask for Jesus's body. And I was captivated by this moment where these two secret believers come out of the closet. Um, and I just remember, like, I remember just reading it in like a normal Easter service or something. And I, but I just was like, why did they do that then? Yeah. That makes no sense. You know, like what? Yeah, yeah. Like he's dead. Like now like you're off the hook. You know what I mean? Like literally, I just was like, that makes no sense. And so then it becomes this like, what is that about? It becomes a little bit like a a bone I've got to like uncover. Like right. what is happening in their lives and in this scenario and what is uh what has happened to free them finally from the fear that was uh containing them at the death of Christ. You know, this is pre-resurrection. What is that about? So so that's been something that I've been marinating over and then just starting to really prepare properly in terms of research and commentating and kind of trying to like cut up the pieces and how this fits with the larger narrative. And, and then I would say then there's a final sort of presentation stage, which is the conversation about how you get all this stuff that's been done in you and you've mm-hmm. processed, which I think is key uh, if you're going to preach authentically is it's all stuff that's happened in you. There has to be some, connection to how it's moved you, touched you, changed you, 
um, personally. There has to be some connection to the text or the idea. And then the prep, the the actual presentation is about how to get people to journey with you. And for me, that usually is just about brainstorming current events, where people feel locked and afraid, where they need to be free, how people find their way out of closets, uh, how, you know, Jesus is central, how, how I can move people with me to discover that same thing that moved me. That's usually how that works. Say more about that third step. How, how does that typically happen? Like, do you have two or three ways that you sort of come back to doing that? Is there a common structure to your talks or is each one unique? Like whatever works to get us there, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, I think it's whatever works. Although, you know, if you, if I listen to myself speak, it's almost all story based. I'm a narrative speaker. Yeah. So story is kind of key to me. So discovering that story, whatever that story is, that kind of really brings it to a place where people can relate, step into the story, get it. Because uh, I feel like that transform the stories are the most transformational ways of telling truth. So, um, so for me, it ends up being like a brainstorm of how to get this main idea, you know, in a way that will move people. Um, So it's usually like a brainstorm, like literally I have a thing in front of me with the word that I feel like is what God told me to speak on for this thing. And I've got like everything associated. I do like a cloud of association. Oh yeah. So the word's in the middle and you just got all this stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then the cloud of association, I'll write down like specific things that, um, ideas of things that have happened. And then what will happen is I'll sift through those ideas and see the ones that I have the best material for. Uh, or need some material for, and then craft actually how to tell that story. Do you, because you are an incredible storyteller, do you like have a notebook or anything on your phone or even like physical notebook where you record stories to say, I'm going to hang on to this because there's something there and you write down the details because I mean, you'll tell it in incredible detail. I'm not a natural storyteller, so I'm just really curious about how you do that. Or is it just like, oh, yeah, there was that time on the airplane, and then you just tell the story? Yeah, literally, it's like, oh, yeah, there was that time, which is infuriating because I really yeah. should have a notebook. Like, yeah, I'm, I know, I'm, I'm, I I'm talking, I'm like, what a great idea. I should write <laughs> that down. And the older I get, the more necessary it is to do. But usually what will happen is I'll tell the story, like I'll tell what happened to somebody near me. Um, and then it'll get told again, like a really good story is one that's been told a bunch of times, mm. right? Yeah, Cause you can't because stop. you learn how to embellish the details. So yeah, you can't stop telling well, that. Well, not story. embellish, so but you know good. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so usually those are the stories that stick are the ones that I keep saying because they've been so profound in me. So, um, so that's kind of a cool it becomes a bit more of a natural process uh, instead of a contrived one. In your view, what makes for a great story? Like when you hear a great story, you tell a great story, what are the ingredients that make it come alive and and lodge and, you know, help us non-natural storytellers to think through that? Yeah, I think it's um, color. Uh, I think it's relatability in some ways, although sometimes I think, um, you know, I used to play the trumpet, which is not surprising because I grew up in the Scottish <laughs> Army. But uh, when I would play, my mom used to say to me, you know, Danielle, I can't see what you're playing. 
And I would be like, what? (laughs) And she'd be like, when I close my eyes and listen to you play, I can't see it. Can you play it so I can see it? And I can't tell you the amount of times I use that that phrase when I'm preaching. Hmm. Like it's in the back of your head? Yeah, like can you see it? Can you see what you're saying? Can you picture it? Can you, are you there? Can you, it, like when, you, if you close your eyes and I tell you the story, could you see it? And if you can paint that kind of a picture for people to be there, to see it, to sense it, to smell it, to taste it, you know, that kind of a thing, then you're a good storyteller. That's the, so you could even, I think this is practiced and actually part of the lost art of uh, telling a good story is just a lack of story time. Um, that we have, you know, it used to be a thing people would gather and tell stories. That's it. Like that was what dinner was about. That was what, right. you know, and I think there's a real, we've lost a bit of that art because we've lost those spaces in our communities where we just sit around and tell stories. But, uh, if you want to cultivate being a good storyteller, make some of those spaces and just practice telling stories. And if you're already a storyteller, I would say, tell somebody a story, have them close their eyes and ask them if they could see it. One of the things I see in a lot of communicators, and I'm, I definitely do this from time, time, time to time, I should say, unless I stop myself. Um, but it's what I call the first five minutes might be like posturing or positioning and you're trying to win the audience over. And what I've noticed with you is you just kind of usually start. You just start. And there's almost this instant connection. You're not hurried. You're not frantic. You're just like, boom, you're there. You're transparent. You're real. Uh, learned over time? Is that your natural style? Can you, can you talk to us about it? I'm just a student of communication, so I'm just curious. You're one of the very best I've ever seen or heard at that, and I just wanted to ask you about it. Well, thanks for saying that. Um, I think, yeah, that's just, I think uh, partly I'm not that really great at small talk. So it might just be my own distaste for wasting everybody's time. You know what I mean? Like I just yeah. feel like, let's just let's just get on with what, what it is that I'm supposed to do. So partly it's just that it's probably I'm not good at that first five minute gig. Um, and then also I have like the times where I try to do that too hard. That doesn't always go well for me. So I think I just avoid it because like when you're trying to win the audience and, over, you're like, oh, this is this is counterproductive. Yeah, because I like I'll say the wrong thing or like I, I'll think something's funny and it's not funny. You know, I've just insulted the audience instead of, you know, that kind of thing. So I just I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to preach, you know. <laughs> um, but one of the things I was going to say that was transformational in my speaking style in the early days is I used to write my sermons out because that's how I was taught to do it. And um, I forgot my notes and wrote and had to make it up. Um and make it up out of what I had studied and prepared. And, and that moment, I remember like being terrified at not having my notes and, but also being completely, um, sold on communicating in such a way that what was in me came out of me, um, naturally. And the eye contact, the connection to the crowd, the engagement, um, I, and I just was like, I never want to do this another way again. And so what I started doing is preaching without notes and um, how I would even prepare my sermons. This was a fascinating thing for me. But what I realized is that the way that you write is very different than the way that you talk. 
So, and that's what happens. A lot of times when you, when you listen to somebody preach a sermon that they're reading, I all sit there going like, this is a really great paper because it really is like, it's a fantastic paper, but you're talking to people like people are here. And so I feel like, so what I actually started doing is I was training for a marathon at the time and I, on on my training runs, So like all my long runs, I would just talk it out. I would just talk out loud uh, the whole sermon out. I wouldn't write. I wouldn't write it out. I would write maybe an outline, but then all of my preparation would be spoken. Uh, and it got even embarrassing on some occasions because I would be like cresting a hill, you know, and then someone would be, someone would be coming up, and You're I'd like, be whoops. like, yeah, I'd be like, you can hear the rest on Sunday, you know, whatever. <laughs> but I just began speaking in preparation. And it was interesting how that really changed the way I even thought about um, communication. Um, Anyway, so if you want to practice, you know, sort of that rule that says like practice makes perfect unless you're practicing Mm -hmm. it wrong. So what if you, you know, like, so if you're practicing memorizing a speech uh, versus connecting with an audience and telling them what God has been doing in you or doing through you in this concept of then maybe you're practicing it wrong. You know, like, wow, it's just an idea, but that really, that really mattered to my preaching. How do you have any techniques that help you remember, um, you know, beginning, middle, end, like, yeah, this talk is about X, Y, Z, because I would imagine that for a lot of leaders who communicate the fear in leaving their notes behind would be like, how am I going to remember the structure of this talk? Or, yeah, I, I use an outline. You do? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you write it down. Is it like a single page, three pages, five pages? What? what it's do you almost do? always a napkin. Really? I mean, it's almost always a little tiny. I have all these little sheets of paper. I had a friend one time who's like, you know, there's apps for that, Danielle. Like I could, <laughs> I could organize that for you, you know. And so usually what happens is I'll, it's like this database of, uh, speaks and things that I've been communicating over the last year. And then usually I read it like a, another year is another group of things, but, um, I'll have them in there and they'll just be like the, you know, a title of a story. Uh, here's the three points on Acts 10. Here's the, you know, two on Acts three. Here's the stories that, and so a lot of my preaching, if you listen to it, it's a, it's a hybrid at whatever event I'm at of some, you know, it's almost like jazz in a way where you have the same format, you have like the rules of the structure, but you're bringing in kind of making up, bringing in these new stories, different stories, older stories, and you're making this new hybrid. You're doing an improv. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And then do you, for that outline, like do you commit to memorizing the outline or you've just looked at it so many times, you know, it stone cold or how does that work? I usually stick it in my Bible and uh, bring it with me on stage. And oh, it's, so you've got it, it if you need it. It sits on a stand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And depending on how new the preach is, so you know that's just back to ten thousand hours. If you mm-hmm. preached, you know, one preach, you know, twenty five times, you probably don't need that outline anymore. Yeah. Um, but uh, when it's a new preach, specifically, I'll bring an outline with me. Yeah. Right. Right. And that is, you know, for a lot of preachers who are listening, that is every Sunday, you know, there are 30 to 48 Sundays a year. 
Yeah. It's like, yeah, everything's new. And I agree, the conference circuit, because I speak in a con, you know, in the conferences you do as well, that's a lot easier because you're using a lot of the same stories. You're giving the talk. I just did the high impact leader last weekend before recording this, and I must have given that talk. 25 times in the last 18 months. And like, you just know it by heart. If you're like, come on, Carrie, do the high impact leader. I'm like, okay, all right, let's go. Right. But this Sunday, I'm going to have to scramble to know what I'm going to say because it's brand new. It's 100% new. Right. And that's a great, like, so I've had different seasons where the pastoral preaching thing, it's also a different skill. Like, I remember coming from a conference. Literally, I, it was in Edmonton and I, I ministered in a little inner city church. So I'd go from like, you know, 5,000 people in a stadium conference, a Christian conference, which really, when you're speaking to Christians at a conference, a lot of the things that you're trying to do, like one essential thing to keep people listening is to build tension in what it yeah. is that you're saying. And so I was, I came literally from that conference, walked down the street to my little inner city church and was speaking at the inner city church. And I, remember, <laughs> and I remember building this tension up because I had just come from Christian conference and I forgot that pastoral preaching is not necessarily building tension. Pastoral preaching is building hope and, <laughs> and relief, you know, almost like this place. I mean, the people that I was preaching to at my inner city church did not need tension in their lives. Right, they got know? enough tension going on. Yeah, and I could feel everyone just going, ah! You know, like, just like, make it stop. And I just was like, Danielle, like, stop it. You're not speaking to Christians at a conference. You're speaking to real people in the real world who need some uh, real hope today. So I think there's just a different, you're doing something different uh, in those things and just recognizing that's helpful. So back to those Preaching Today tapes, I just have to ask, because it's going to bother me. (laughs) Who were you listening to? Who were a couple of your favorite formative communicators? Yeah, you know, uh, Harold Robinson was always a good one. I thought he was he was so crafty, you know, in terms of what how he put together his talks. I really loved uh, the tension and the resolve and the ways you could you could hear him do those things. That was brilliant. And I really loved Ravi Zacharias. I listened to I still listen to Ravi actually a fair bit. Um, I love I don't know if it's partly his accent and then also he's just a genius. So I love listening to him and his apologetics, his humility of the gospel is just beautiful when he, when he talks about Jesus and I love Tony Campolo. I couldn't get enough of him. And actually I used to say as a young person, if I could be Tony and Ravi mixed, (laughs) I would like be in heaven. And I, I feel like in some Sometimes I feel like I kind of like get those You're getting close. Eh? Yeah. Sometimes I feel like I'm kind of like at least nodding to both of them when I'm preaching. Yeah. It's good. We all have mentors. We all have people we want to be like. I was, I was just curious about that. Well, Danielle, you're also uh, not only a, a speaker and you've worked at a church, you are a mom of three boys and a wife, and you've got an extremely busy life. Every time I talk to you, you're flying somewhere or coming back from somewhere. Uh, and you run a number of organizations, you know, founded slash run a number of, of incredible causes. What are some of the, the rhythms that you've had that have really helped you um, survive slash thrive in the midst of it all? Yeah, well, that's one of my things that I co-founded is a thing called Infinitum. And um, Infinitum is Latin for boundless. And it's really basic spiritual formation. 
Uh, it's got some really healthy rhythms to it. A bunch of leaders, uh, missional leaders, really, we've all been doing grassroots kind of mission training, inner city church uh, development, uh, church plants. And at the end of the day, we kind of just were like, what are we most proud of? of the things that we've done. And we realized that we were most proud of the disciples that we had made, the people that were still doing incredible things in the world. So we thought, why don't we just, you know, one, why don't we just do that? Like, why don't we actually just make the main thing about our life, um, helping people follow Jesus. And then we also asked this really important question, which was, are we still following Jesus? Mm. Like, is this a fresh thing for us? Or is this just something we decided to do a long time ago? And now we're just kind of stuck in the in the mechanics of it all, or are we really, is this journey I'm on with Jesus fresh and exciting and new? And so we all kind of started taking the best of what we'd learned over the years and practicing daily, monthly, uh, daily, weekly, monthly uh, rhythm of uh, basic discipleship. And I've got to tell you that that has been the most refreshing uh, couple of years for me spiritually, uh, as I've just been about basic practices. And it seems like the more we know, um, sometimes the less we do, (laughs) you know, like it's not about knowing that I should spend time with God every day. It's about spending time with God Mm. every day. It's just a different Mm -hmm. thing. And we're so prone to knowing that we should spend time, you know, and knowing that that's, but I just, I feel like the practice of it has been really beautiful. So it's a, it's a daily prayer and time with God. It's a, a weekly accountability meeting I have with a partner. And then it's a monthly challenge where I'm, I'm trying to work on a new way of encountering Jesus. So it's been a really beautiful journey. That's and been it's super an app, helpful. isn't it? I remember you telling me about it. Yeah, it's an app you can download that should uh, help you. It's a website, infinitumlife.com. And you know, people are using it for their churches as a way of spiritual formation for introducing people to discipleship that's practice-based, not just skill-based. So this is the other thing in my experience. This this has really helped me to work with uh, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds because they're not as skilled. Right. And so how do you make disciples of people who don't like reading, for example? Um, and so I, that was a real challenge for me at the time because I was like, oh my gosh, we've really made discipleship school-based. You know, like it's like a curriculum instead of a practice. But how did how do you follow Jesus as a practice? So uh, it's been super refreshing and useful tool. And uh, for me personally, it's it's been a rejuvenizing and also like a, a foundational setting. Like it's been really um, it's been really basic and true, and, and it's held me to what matters. Yeah. What are the core components of infinitum? like Bible reading, prayer, but community, like you actually check in with other people, right? Well, that's that weekly, you know, sort of a nod to the uh, Wesleyan uh, weekly meetings, but it's that, Mm. it's the small group, it's that tiny group. Like this is one of my friends who's co-founded Infinitum as a leadership guru. His name is Phil Wall from England. And he, you know, he's a a leader coach to CEOs and all kinds of things and Christian leaders. and, And he says all the time, like, um, who do you confess your sin to? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. It's a great <laughs> question. And we're like, God, when I remember, which kind of sometimes means like no other human being. Which keeps it a secret, which keeps it hidden, which keeps it and, it, and it, and it implodes your life in this like a supposed to be, but not really. And you're like struggling with shame and fear and guilt all the time. But do you have somebody in your life right now where you could just sit down and go, you know what? 
I'm really struggling and I'd like you to pray for me. And I mean, and how transformative could it be, especially for leaders? Because this is what we've come to discover is how isolated leaders are, mostly because I think we have this unspoken idea that we don't sin. Right, right. It's right? like everybody it's like, else, right? It's everyone else. Like, it's what do you me. mean? I haven't sinned. What are you talking about? I don't sin. But like, you know, your struggles, your doubts, your fears, your weaknesses, who are you connecting to where you can actually say, here I am as a real human being before Jesus You know, I'm just one beggar trying to tell another beggar where to find bread. And all of our systems and structures in leadership, especially in the church, are all designed to isolate leaders uh, and to make them scared of being vulnerable and honest. So this is designed in that opposite direction. And we feel like it's it's a means by which healthy uh, leaders are better followers of Jesus. Any other things that have really helped you sort of stay alive and relatively healthy in the game doing all that? Yeah, I'm a I'm a regular uh, attender of recovery meetings. I try once a week, sometimes in other parts of the world. So I'll finish speaking at a conference and go Google a AA meeting and and sit down with with a bunch of uh, recovering addicts and talk about what we have in common. So. And for me, that's been a a genuine gift, I think I said earlier, of recognizing uh, really what kind of power humility and surrender and grace have to play in our daily lives. So that's super, super, if I'm in a healthy spot, I'm regularly practicing uh, recovery. Man, and that's something, you know, I've got friends who are in that movement you never really graduate from, right? It's not like, you know, like that's just a part of your life. I think the idea is that you you go deep, you keep going deeper, you keep discovering more, you keep getting freer, and then you invite other people on that journey. So it's not so much that you stay stuck. That's what I, I used to think. So I, I never used to go because I'd be like, oh, those people are still stuck. My life isn't defined by you know, my sin or my weakness, my life is defined by all these adventurous things I'm doing. But what I realized is that it's a beautiful, healthy journey to go deeper and to keep on going deeper, mm. that recovery is not just one thing that happens to us once, but something we we keep exploring. So it's a great gift. And then it's also this great opportunity to be able to say, maybe recovery is not just about me, shock and awe. Maybe it's <laughs> actually an invitation to invite some other people uh, and to engage in and and recovery. I mean, anyone will tell you that goes to recovery groups. They're the most honest, refreshingly honest people on the planet. So I actually think, you know, maybe every church leader should go find a recovery group just to listen to honest people uh, in like a direct opposition to like say what you think people want to hear or, you know, don't whatever you do, don't be yourself because that's not what people want. You know, like just to fight right. against tendencies of Christian leadership for sure. So you're a wife and a mom, also a uh, female leader in the church. I just, I want to ask you, because we have a lot of women listening who are in leadership, um, and you come from a very, from what I understand, fairly affirming background in terms of Salvation Army, affirming the gift of women in leadership. But have you run into obstacles or roadblocks because uh, you're a woman who preaches, and how has that impacted you? And what have you done about that to sort of... You know, you're seen as a trailblazer by many in many areas. Yeah, I think, you know, again, I kind of call myself the Forrest Gump of some of these things because (laughs) I just never thought about it. You know, like I just literally just I just did stuff and then people would say, oh, 
can you do that? You're a woman, you know? And I'd be like, I never thought about it. Like, just did um, it. it seems like I can, you know? So I think definitely the heritage of the Salvation Army has been helpful because there's been world leaders who've been women. Like there, there's never really been this ceiling. I've never thought, oh, I can't do that because I'm a woman. So that's been remarkable. And um, as a teenager, I was super passionate about all things feminism. Uh, there's a justice thing in me. So I think I also had that deep uh, conviction. But um, definitely I felt, especially like um, I felt that there is a disconnect between what much of the church believes. So there's a small percentage of the evangelical church who are still struggling with egalitarianism. Uh, that's that's just going to change because culture has changed and we just understand that that's untenable. That's it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy town. So that's not going to stick around. But I feel like there's still this big gap in the church. And this is one of the things I feel like the Lord's been calling me to help um, with is this gap where we believe that it's God's the gospel truth to empower everybody for kingdom purposes. So this is just everybody, regardless of gender. or And it's this beautiful reverse of the curse uh, to see people empowered from different backgrounds and different social status and different genders and different races and all the diversity, the celebration of diversity is what God's after. So there's something beautiful. And I think there's a real hunger and thirst for that, but there's a, still a gap because our systems and structures have been so male dominated. Yeah. And so there's this real gap. And so that gap is kind of one of the things I've been trying to, to help uh, conference organizers and leaders and teachers try to really be specific about. Like, I think you cannot, where there's an imbalance or an incorrection, uh, there has to be a corrective measure. Mm. You know, if, if, a, if your son has a, a foot that leans too far to the left when he's born, they put a brace on his foot and it's going to correct itself. It's not like the, it's broken. It's just facing the wrong way and it needs to be corrected. So I think there are some systemic corrections that need to take place. And if we keep thinking that they're, they don't need to take place, uh, then we're going to limp. The church is going to keep limping because it actually, it's, you know, that part of the church is facing the wrong direction. It needs to actually be corrected. Hmm. So uh, we've been working, like really sort of just trying to figure out how we do that in a grace-filled, beautiful, inspirational, mobilizing way. Uh, which is what we always, we always want to be gospel centric. No one's in trouble. This is just how it's been. And this is the culture we've come out of, but how can we make it the best of what God wants? So if there's women leaders, uh, what I would say is we need you because much of the angst uh, in the leaders I speak to in systems and structures and conference organizers and leadership teams and church planners, they're saying, where are the women? Because we want them and we can't find them. And that's a fascinating thing since most of the church are them. So, right. you know, I mean, I spend my time sort of mocking those guys uh, saying like, what do you mean you can't find them? They're literally everywhere. <laughs> and, but at the same time, trying to say to women who are busy and are stuck and some who are stuck in these uh, systems themselves who feel invisible and maybe are invisible um, to put up their hands and start taking their turn and start working on their gifts and start volunteering to lead, not just serve, but lead. That's a great word. Well, a couple more questions for you. What would you say to young leaders? We have a lot of young leaders listening who are just starting out. Can you give us some of your best advice? Just like whenever you sit down with a group of young leaders, somebody who was you like at 22, 23, what would you, what would you tell them? 
I just say, go, go, go and do what's in front of you. Just do what's in front of you. So stop. Like I, I know a lot of people get really paralyzed by big pictures mm-hmm. and, uh, and people will say to me, you know, like, how did you do what you, you did? I'm like, I'm as surprised as anybody, like just for the <laughs> record, I didn't sit down with a plan and go like, well, this is how I'm going to be a speaker on a, you know, like yeah, no I, yeah, you just do what's in front of you. So whatever's in front of you, that if you're, if you want to be about justice, then do something in front of you about justice, like volunteer with your local group. If human trafficking is your thing, go find out who's fighting it and join them. And that road in your actions and your practice, if you want to be a speaker, then find out where you can start speaking immediately. Even if it's like one of those, like, you know, 10 minute speaker clubs at uh, Kiwanis on or something like wherever it is, just start to do it, like act out what it is that you want to be. Uh, because this disembodied idea that somehow magically things happen for people uh, does not exist. That's just a myth. And that's where all the joy is. And that's the thing that I keep telling people. The joy is not speaking on the stage. The joy is having lived those stories. Right. The joy is in the life. So why you think it feels joyful for me to speak on a stage is because I'm reliving on that stage the, those experiences that I've had with God and people and these incredible places where God shows up. And I learn things because I'm following this Jesus who's like radically engaged with the world. And so that's where all the joy is. So even if it is you want to do platform stuff or you want to do leadership stuff, all the joy, all the stuff that's actually going to be transferred, that's going to make anybody delighted is actually found in those places in the journey. So get involved, love some people like, honestly love some people and uh it'll lead you to the right spot every time what's some of the best advice you've ever been given by someone else yeah so this is my friend commissioner ingrid Lindbergh. i served with her for three months in russia as a volunteer um when the salvation army is reestablishing itself there and i said to her you know i what is your mojo because she was remarkable and just had loads of incredible authority and power and was able to communicate. And I said to her, you know, I need all your secrets. And she just looked at me and said, Oh, Danielle, just stay close to Jesus. It's the only secret Mm. I have. And I mean, it was so simple, but it's true. I've discovered that to be true in my own life. If you stay close and follow Jesus, you're going to discover everything you need. Well, you've got a lot on the go. You've got uh, Amplify Peace. You've got Infinitum. You've got your brave thing that you're doing. Where can people connect with you online? Yeah, best place is my website, daniellestrickland.com, and everything's there. You can It's all linked up, so you can find and discover some of the stuff going on. Oh, we'll link to that in the show notes. Danielle, thanks for being with right. us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, you can get everything in the show notes if you want it. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com. Just search Danielle's name. You will see this episode. And uh, she is just an incredible communicator speaking all over the world. She's also passionate about helping people. She's founded a number of organizations uh, just in terms of social justice. You can check all that. All the links are in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I hope you had a good week this week, like doing these bonus episodes. I know that's a lot of fuel, but for a lot of us, summer is a time where we're out running, cycling, doing yard work. And that's when I listen to podcasts or even on a long road trip. 
And I'm talking to more and more like 20 something guys who are like listening to hours of podcasts a week, sometimes a day. I had a conversation recently with a guy who said, you know, I had a pretty lame job. So I would listen to five hours of podcasts a day. So we're just committed to bringing you high quality content. And uh, it's fun to do this. Thanks, guys. Thanks for your ratings, reviews. Thanks for sharing this. Thank you for, um, for all your encouragement. And we're back next Tuesday with a fresh episode back onto our regularly scheduled. And then we have our 200th episode and we're going to throw a party for you. Okay, so hang on. There's going to be a treat every day for that on the week that we celebrate episode 200. Thank you so much for listening. I really do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before and head on over to theartofbetterpreaching.com before it's too late. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.